Welcome to Planet Noun, where it's all about the people, places, things, and ideas that teach us, prompt us to make a difference, and do more with what life presents. So February is Black History Month in the United States. It's a time to focus on the contributions and achievements of African Americans, not only in the past, but to hear, read, and take in the experiences of those who are still with us, still writing their stories. Here's one such person who was also helping to expose folks to the stories of others. On this episode of Planet Noun, a frank, sometimes humorous, sometimes serious chat with George Davis, executive director of the California African American Museum. What was the path that you took to get to CAM? You have about four hours. Do you have the 10-minute version? (laughs) (laughs) A wide-open question. A short version of it is that I was on the board of this museum from 1999 to 2002. We're a state museum, so the board members are appointed by the governor. I had a long career in the broadcasting entertainment industry, and my kids were growing about, they thought they were growing before then, but they were growing <laughs> about 10 years ago, and about my youngest. And um, I just wanted to do something different for, if you call it, the second act. They wanted to be more personally fulfilling for me. And I had done a lot of nonprofit boards, and it was a great experience, but there's only so much you can do on a board compared to running the organization. So I wanted to actually be more directly involved in running an organization. And um, when you do the same thing for a long time, like it or not, there's a brand that you have that's on your forehead. So if you've been a musician and you want to be um, an actor, people see you as a musician. You know, So it's hard to make those transitions as you get older. And so I had to take a little bit of a journey uh, networking-wise to talk to people and to repackage myself. And this opportunity came about in March of 2015 where they were looking for an interim director here. They kept looking for the permanent. I became uh, the permanent in July of that same year. It reminds me of uh, something I was reading. I'm still reading uh, Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. And she describes the the changes that a person may take. She calls it a, a swerve. So, you know, she took a swerve. Of course, she worked in, in corporate law and then became, you know, worked in the nonprofit world. And it sounds like you also, you know, took a swerve. So what led you to the need to take that swerve? So was it one day you woke up and said, aha, I think I would like to do something different? Or was it was it an accumulation of maybe I'd like to do something different? Okay, I definitely need to do something different. Was it over some years or was it like, as Oprah says, an aha that you had? Well, if people know me, I'm incredibly um, honest, transparent. And um, I think I had a calling for service as a very young boy. I always liked to volunteer. And I started serving on boards at my early 30s. So I've been on a variety of boards, state boards, corporate boards, nonprofit boards. And um, again, I just felt that, especially in the nonprofit, culturally specific, a lot of times the people who are leading them, they have a big heart but they don't have management expertise. They don't have um, knowing how to manage people and relationships. And uh, so I just saw a real gap there with the caliber of the management side of a lot of nonprofits and a lot of culture-specific institutions. And, you know, it's easy for us in the black community and other communities to complain all the time amongst ourselves when we 
go somewhere and we felt the service level is not met where we, where we feel it should be, we try to keep that our own community. But instead of that, I think it's important that some of us who are blessed to have had success in uh, the private sector that are looking to do something different consider this. So I was uh, the state president for a while for California AARP, and we had a big initiative called Life Reimagine. And so here we are talking to people. I'm doing panels. I'm you know evangelizing this second career thing, and then I went through the same journey myself. Back to the personal part, I went through a divorce, and it wasn't a, quote, bad divorce. My, as I mentioned earlier, my kids were grown, so I didn't have the same financial requirements in terms of needing to have the big house or pay the college tuition. And so if I felt the same way before, I just physically couldn't make the career change. I just had too many responsibilities when I was a a younger executive to make that career change to service. And so I just felt that I was in a good place, that I didn't need to have, you know, the the huge house on the hill anymore. Uh, My wife got that out, by the way. And and, and, uh, that, again, my kids were grown. And I, because when you make this career change, you're going to make less money, and, and you have to be prepared for that. And so it was just a good time for me personally. But I've always had a passion for service. And, again, I think my experience, a lot of the people that do service come from more social work. They usually don't have MBAs, okay? So I have an MBA. So I, so I think by bringing that kind of business process way of looking at problem solving it's kind of sometimes it's considered a little disruptive to people who come from that traditional caring from the heart side because they don't want because like capitalism is horrible and and letting people go is horrible but i think that's the main problem a lot of nonprofits they didn't they didn't transition didn't change they weren't they're not relevant anymore i look at um african-american brands that were big when i was growing up ebony magazine jet and I, I question why weren't they big in digital, okay? And uh, I look at the NAACP. I look at the Urban League, who were ginormous organizations, what they did in their history. And why is Black Lives Matter around now instead of them? You know, so, so I figure a lot of those organizations did a great job of at the time they were created. And maybe the leadership, frankly, when they were a little younger, but then I think they get in their 60s and 70s sometimes, they're not doing a good job of getting out of the way or nurturing new talent. And so that's one of the things we're doing here at the museum. I, I'm in my early 60s, and I'm really committed to you know, mentoring and developing young leaders so it's, this whole place is not based on me. And I see a lot of organizations in the black community that have great leaders, but they haven't had good succession or they haven't converted to digital. So all these websites that you see... I'm not saying that they should have all transitioned from analog like Ebony, but it's kind of sad in a way that they didn't transition. I just think that's really important is those of us who have business skills or in in careers that you have to continually evolve, continually repackage yourself. A lot of times in government or nonprofits, you're not in that same pressure. And so I think that has created a problem on the flip side of them not being relevant to the younger demographics. So whether or not you have that pressure, you still need to kind of pinch yourself to make those, to go through different types of evolution so that you can stay relevant? Well, I'm sure Sears thought they were relevant when they had the catalog. I'm sure Toys R Us thought they were relevant. I'm sure um, Tower Records, California, back in the day, 
you look at all the brands that have gone out of business and are no longer around. And in their heyday, they were right in the sweet spot of servicing the customers, but people don't need a catalog anymore either for, for Sears. And so I think either the wolf at the door, if you're in, in a profit business where you're always having competitors that scare you to death and force you to be relevant, but I think the others have to not wait until you're forced, and you have to see and have a vision of where things are going. No one forced me to dramatically change this institution. I just knew it had to get changed dramatically. We were a museum that really skewed mainly for people over 50. We were almost 100% African-American, and my kids in their 30s and their friends never came here. They had no reason to come here. There wasn't anything that was relevant for them. So what happens is a lot of times we present programming of our generation, and then we lecture the young people as to why they didn't attend, and something's wrong with them. Instead of like, well, maybe that John Lewis documentary needs to be packaged a little different. Maybe the video's too long. Maybe, you know, you guys have ADHD. You know what I mean? So we have to find ways to be engaging. And again, someone who's well-meaning might not see that if they don't have younger staff or people in their life who are kind of helping them. They're actually listening to it. Otherwise, you keep using the same playbook, and then you blame the audience. So what are some of the changes that you've made? I know you said you are mentoring younger folks. What are some of the changes that you've made as far as content in the museum? So we are a state museum, and our mission is uh, art, history, and culture with a focus on California. If you think, uh, whether you're African-American or others, people traditionally think of Jim Crow, slavery, Harlem Renaissance. It's very much an East Coast thought of, of the black journey. And the founders here were really concerned about that. They wanted to make sure that there's unique history about California. That's why we are the California African American Museum. So the museum had exhibits that in many cases were up probably a little too long. Again, some of our history exhibits were not really, I won't use the word popping. I'm not sure if they weren't dope, whatever the right, <laughs> right, the right word is. But they, they weren't working with the younger folks. I use the analogy of documentaries before Ken Burns. And you would see an uh, academic with books behind them, and there will be a, a still shot. And they might have great content, but it's very boring. And so you see Ken Burns documentaries where they have video and motion and music and so forth. And so first thing I did was I hired a very strong art person. I have a business background. I worked in entertainment, but I didn't want to appear that I was an art person or a history expert. So I hired a very sharp young lady uh, named Naima Keith, who worked at Studio Museum in Harlem, and had also been at Hammer Museum here in uh, L.A., had an MFA from UCLA, and also went to Spelman. And she became the deputy director. And so we went, moved aggressively into contemporary art. Uh, a lot of the contemporary artists in Los Angeles were getting national international acclaim, like Mark Bradford or African American. And so we already had this in our community in terms of uh, really strong artists that were contemporary art. That's where the art world's been moving aggressively. So we move more toward contemporary art. We focus a lot more on uh, some emerging female artists who have not been exhibited in uh, museums, both African-American and others. And we also decided to do history in a much more relevant manner. Instead of doing 100 or 200 or 300 years in one gallery to take a deep dive on one subject, hired a young curator who's just turned 30 and who's really brought in graphics, video, just different colors in the gallery, and he's also a great public speaker. So when we have events, our audience is now skewing more younger. You know, as I, as I say, he can wear the tight jeans still, which I can't wear. <laughs> so, so he really fits the new brand. 
We've changed our website. We changed our logo. We went much more stronger with social media engagement also. We also became a Smithsonian affiliate. Uh, okay, so what does that mean to be a Smithsonian affiliate? A Smithsonian affiliate, it's a little bit of both of a good housekeeping seal. It's nice to have the recognition, but also it gives you access both to travel exhibits. Also, you can get access to the curators or researchers and so forth along that line. And best of all, I can help people get into the museum in D.C. One of the things that fascinates me is that I've been to the National Museum of African American History and Culture. It's a great place. I want my nieces to visit. They live in Louisiana. My sister, when she was out visiting me, we went a couple of times. I went with someone else. And I I need more visits in order to really absorb everything into my pores. Mm -hmm. But another thing I realized is that, well, it's really important for these local museums. You touched on this earlier because, as you said, the African American experience is largely, you know, East Coast. You know, we talk about Birmingham, we talk about, you know, the South. And one thing I I realized, I had an uncle who passed away recently. He was involved in the civil rights movement in Shreveport, Louisiana. I knew about it. I heard some of the stories. He told me some of, some of the stories. But I didn't realize that he, you know, was one of the founding members of an organization in Shreveport. And that led me to think, well, there is so much local history, like you said, that probably will never make mm-hmm. The National Museum. So it's important. So my sister and I brought our nieces here. I didn't know, like, some of the first settlers of Los Angeles were people of African descent. I I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Well, that's because of the East Coast bias also. That's part of the problem probably, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's where you East Coast folks are. But um, Wait, I'm, I'm a native. I'm a Cali native. <laughs> after three years, you're not, a, you're, not a, you're not an Angelino anymore. And two snowstorms. Yeah, exactly. You're not an Angelino. So a couple of answers I would give you. One is that most black museums are tied to a black college. Most African-American museums are history. We're unique that we're art and history. Uh, the museum in D.C., for the most part, is a history museum. Uh, the museum in D.C. Is, has been very good for us in a lot of different ways, including helping, having, making sure we have to step up our game. The other thing I'd mention is that a lot of museums, well, let me rephrase that, a lot of communities were reluctant to rip away the scabs of the history in the South. And so in many ways, they did not want to have a museum talking about what really happened. So they have a plantation tour. There's no slave shacks. They're not really talking about things. And so now these city councils, mayors, they all figured, oh, we can make a little money. So you're seeing a real growth of black museums in the South that are really well-funded, professionally managed, and are locally focused. The other part of it is that the reason why culture-specific museums exist is that coming out of the riots in the 60s, there was a feeling of a lot of things besides television, the media imagery, that you didn't see images of yourself at the mainstream museums that you visited either. So that become, you know, Chinese museums, Jewish museums, black, all these culture-specific museums start sprouting up. Well, it's actually happening now, which is really, how you look at it, I think is positive, is that the mainstream museums are finally fully recognizing that they, you know, you're in Baltimore, you have 70 or 60 whatever percent of African Americans, and you go to their main museum and there's no African Americans on the wall, that they have to look at doing, they have to acquire African American art, that they might deaccession some of the art that they have in there. And so you're seeing a lot of African American exhibits in non African American museums. So the Broad Museum here in town is having an exhibit this year, Soul of a Nation. Uh, LACMA here, L.A. County Museum of Art, is going to have 
Charles White retrospective. So this did not happen in the past. So you're just seeing uh, white-owned galleries now representing African-American artists. And so it lifts all the boats. It's a positive thing. You know, Sean Combs bought a piece from uh, Kerry James Marshall last year for $21 million, which is the highest amount ever for a living African-American artist. So the collectors who might not be, shall we say, experts in civil rights movement are also capitalists, and they're going, this is a hot market, too. So I just think that even the people who politically or morally might not really support a slavery museum, let's say, they're realizing that there's a ginormous amount of African Americans in particular that do family reunions, that do tourism, that have disposable income, that want this history. And so they're really seeing that growth substantially in our country. One thing I learned at a museum in Baltimore, I there's there's so much. I'm realizing there's just so much I don't know about my own history. It's not in the history books. And basically you have to go out of your way to learn it. And if it's in a museum, that's just one less step that I would need to take to learn more. For example, in um, Baltimore, I didn't know, and it kind of makes sense now that I think about it, in the days when we were excluded from just about everything because of, of segregation and Jim Crow, I didn't know that black people owned beaches. It sounds so elementary. And as I stared at the exhibit, this was a few years ago in Baltimore, I said, okay, well, I know we own things, you know, but we had our own resorts. If we were not allowed to participate, we created so much for ourselves. And I recent a couple years ago, I found out about Bruce's Beach in uh, Manhattan Beach. Grew up in the area. I had my orthodontist was in that area. I had no idea. And so all of these are just helping me realize how robust we we were more than slaves. Mm-hmm. We were more than the enslaved. We are, and this is not to diminish anyone else. Mm-hmm. We're a beautiful people. And a diverse people, just because we all, you know, have similar shades doesn't mean that we're not diverse. Well, I, I'm not a beautiful person, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, thank you. Um, well, I think one thing that's not said that I'll say is there actually were people that were aware of this history, but they were not communicating in a way that was being received. So... I give I give analogy to my staff all the time that you're on top of a hill with a transmitter and you're beaming programming, but if the receiving dish is not pointed to the hill, no one hears what you're transmitting. There's an important piece of this is marketing and having the content, again, to my earlier point, where people tune to that channel or actually drive to that museum. But if you're if the museum is, you know, you're supposed to open at 10 and you go there at 10 and no one's there, or if it's just kind of boring the way it's laid out, there might have been people that known about the beaches. So that's my challenge, really, is how do you tell these stories that are packaged differently? And also, if what we're doing here at our museum is only educating African Americans, we've done a really poor job. Because a lot of African Americans, they might not know the deep dive of everything, but they have a pretty good idea through family and others. It's our other friends and colleagues and co-workers that need to come. And so we're now 40% non-African-American in terms of our attendance. There's an old saying about preaching to the choir, and if you just, you got to have other people coming in to hear the choir if you're going to grow the church. So I don't disagree with you about the lack of these stories not told, 
but I do feel that if the answer is just more museums, but if it's boringly presented, I don't know if that's a word, but if it's presented in a boring manner. It's a word today. Okay. Uh, boringly. Uh, I, don't know sp- I kind of know how to spell that. Um, but if it's presented in a way where even my generation is bored, God help me taking my grandson there. You know, it's something not talked about a lot, especially in the black community, is our expectation of professional service and professional delivery. So I can put great art on the wall, but if my staff's not friendly out there, if the restrooms are not clean, if, if there's not spell check on our labels of the, the exhibits or our brochures are not on good paper. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not just having a museum. It's having a museum that anyone comes and goes, you exceed their expectation of uh, professionalism, of content, of research, of the, the imagery, and so forth. And I feel like we have to maintain, even with a lower budget, a similar standard that you would see at a mainstream museum. And that's something I'm really passionate about. I mean, you go to Bank of America. I won't mention a district here in L.A., <laughs> but if you go to the one in Brentwood uh, and there's eight or nine people, if there's only one teller, they get three tellers real quick. Uh, or someone on the line goes, excuse me, and we almost are preconditioned to go in expecting one teller. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And we go to a restaurant, we're almost preconditioned to have the service slow or something. And I just want nothing to do with that. And I just feel really strongly. And a lot of my non-African-American friends, they come in, and I can see that they're blown away because their expectation was so low. Mm. You know, they you know, they thought the place would be smaller. They just, the, the scale of research, the graphics, and they come away embarrassed that they haven't been here, mm-hmm. feel, feeling guilty. And I tell them not to feel bad because a lot of black folks haven't been here either. Right. <laughs> If you're not, if you're not, again, if you're not marketing correctly, if you're not relevant, if you're not timely, if you have topics that are not resonating with people, because LA is a market where people drive and it's a lot of traffic, and who's who wants to drive 30, 45 minutes an hour and not have their expectations minimally met? No one wants to do that, you know. And so that's why it's so important because we're an incredibly competitive town in terms of the options you have for entertainment and culture. That's George Davis, Executive Director of the California African American Museum. Now, if you haven't been to the museum, make sure to visit the next time you're in Los Angeles. And if you live in those parts, make sure you get on by there. So in this next part, Davis gives a rundown of the museum's features, a few current exhibits. By the time this episode drops, a couple of those will be on their last days there. But if you go to planetnown.com, you'll find links with more information on those dates, exhibits, as well as media write-ups about some of the artists that Davis mentions. More with George Davis, Executive Director of the California African American Museum. So we have five galleries. Uh, our museum is 44,000 square feet. We have uh, 4,000 items in our permanent collection. So we have uh, two of the galleries are dedicated to history, three are art. Uh, we have one exhibit uh, that is pretty much items from our permanent collection. So we have a lot of items that have gone up substantially in value with African-American art going up. And a lot of the museums that are, or collectors are buying these same artists later on, we have a lot of their art in their early stage of their career, which is even more interesting and valuable. We have another exhibit called California Bound, 
uh, Slavery and the New Frontier, which covers eight, 20 years, uh, 18, well, eight, the mid-1800s. And a lot of people do not know the history of how California being a free state, and if you brought a slave here, what were those dynamics? And also, as you mentioned earlier, about some of the founders of Los Angeles being, being of African descent. Uh, we have another exhibit on an excellent artist named Robert Pruitt that has been seen as one of the top 15 exhibits in L.A. all museums uh, in, uh, by the L.A. Times in 2018. We have a smaller exhibit on Martin Luther King visit here to Los Angeles at the old Wrigley Stadium, which is no longer in existence, and he raised money from his visit here. He had celebrity friends, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Marlon Brando. He raised $70,000, which was a lot of money in those days, and that funded a lot of the activities needed for the March of Washington. So just like today, people come to California mainly to raise money a lot of times, although our primary is going to be different this coming session, season, uh, political election. And so we have the Robert Pruitt, as I mentioned, is an excellent exhibit. Uh, and all of those uh, items that I mentioned are all curated internally. So none of the exhibits I mentioned are uh, traveling exhibits. They're all curated internally by our staff. You are listening to Planet Noun, People, Places, Things, Ideas, and a conversation with our person for this episode, George Davis, Executive Director of the California African American Museum. Now, in the final segment here, Davis talks about the importance of expanding the knowledge of black history among and beyond black folks, museums as a way to increase that knowledge, visiting such places with an open mind and taking in the things, the exhibits, information, art, the facts, and ideas they convey, acknowledging the facts of history and reckoning with that information to grow beyond our country's ills, past and present. More with George Davis, Executive Director of CAM, the California African American Museum. I just think that um, we're in a time of uh, political turmoil, clearly. You know, I'm, I'm 61 years old. I was very optimistic during my lifetime because I saw a lot of really great changes and a lot of amazing things happened during my, my, my life. I was born in 1957, so I remember, you know, I was in kindergarten when JFK was killed, so I remember all these kind of things. And so just watching MLK, watching the kids uh, get water hose on TV and all these images. Uh, um, and then I think that, I also reflect on how little I learned about black history in school. Um, it was Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, uh, you know, half a day of slavery, maybe. In the younger kids, might learn about Jim Crow. And so I'm just amazed how my white friends and other non and actually some African Americans, they might know everything about a baseball player. Everything about Michael Jordan, everything about Kobe and how many points he scored. And then you tell them that black folks had to be out of Culver City at sundown or that there's a beach in Manhattan Beach where it was the only place we could go to swim. And they never, they look at you like they can't believe this happened. And this is not 100 years ago. So I just feel there's a lot of ignorance that it gets wrapped up into political discourse where we're kind of fighting each other. And, it's, and history shouldn't be left or right. History should be history. And hopefully we won't have people in colleges that are slanting it one way or the other. But someone bombed that church. Uh, someone marched in that street. They started at 8 in the morning, and they stopped at 2 
That's a fact. There were a certain amount of people there. They wore dark suits. There's video showing that. So can we try to at least acknowledge what happened? And whether you're left or right, you acknowledge what happened. And, and if you can't plug that into your buoy base, into your thought process, to your reflection, and it doesn't mean you vote differently, but at least you are not ignorant historically of what's happened. And we just have so many people. You look at the old uh, Jay Leno had people called jaywalking. He would take people up to Universal Studios, and they didn't know who the vice president was. So there was a lot of people that just don't know basic facts, and history has been kind of taken out a lot of the schools. And so my my hope is that through whether it's documentaries, books, Internet, visit to museums, oral history, that at least people are curious, get out of their comfort zone, learn about history, and don't feel like, I can't go to that museum because I'm a Trump supporter. You know, you're, you're welcome to come here. You're welcome to come to any African-American, any Jewish museum, any Chinese-American museum, and just come in with an open mind and reflect on what you see. And also, please take your kids and your grandchildren, too. So I just my, I guess my hope is that at least we can do a better job of educating people of the history of this country and how African-Americans are not as segregated, isolated bucket that we're part of American history. So even though we're the California African-American history, this is American History Museum. And it doesn't mean we don't celebrate other groups. People have to feel isolated or why do you have a whole month or whatever. Get away from all that and just go. And it's a great thing about certain cities like our city in L.A. I mean, even if you haven't traveled overseas, you can go to a Korean restaurant, a Peruvian restaurant. You can have so many – there's different radio stations. There's just so much – I hate to use the word melting pot of, of, of a city like Los Angeles where it's – how can you be ignorant? You know, How can you still be ignorant about culture and about things like that? So I don't believe we should be knocking people over the head or guilting them or just trying to put our agenda on them. But I just think we need to expose them to facts that are irrefutable. You know, not Mama Holly knocked out Joe Frazier. Joe Frazier knocked There's certain things that happened. And I believe if we can be do a good job at that, that we will help to hopefully, hopefully help to heal the divisiveness in this country. Thanks for listening to Planet Noun, where it's all about the people, places, things, and ideas that teach us, prompt us to make a difference, and do more with what life presents. That was George Davis, Executive Director of the California African American Museum. Learn more about the museum, including website links and social media handles related to this episode at planetnoun.com. I'm Liz Anderson, host of the Planet Noun podcast. Don't forget to follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please stop by Apple Podcasts and rate the show. Oh, and we're now on Google Play Music. If you have interview ideas, folks who are doing the most to make a difference where they're planted, or folks with an interesting story, please drop me an email planetnoun at gmail.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T as in planet, noun, N-O-U-N as in the part of speech, planetnoun at gmail.com. Thanks again for stopping by and until next time, take care. <laughs>